Athlete Mindset is part of the CadSource Podcast Network. At CadSource, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're growing this one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you by searching CadSource on your social media app of choice. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network, the CadSource Podcast Network. This is the Athlete Mindset Podcast, and it's all about mental health in sports. Presented and produced by Sports Eat Plus, part of the CadSource Podcast Network. Athlete Mindset is hosted by Lisa Bontasumi. Lisa is a therapist and mental performance consultant to high-performing athletes at the youth, collegiate, and professional levels. Lisa also works with teams, coaches, and other members of the sports ecosystem. The Athlete Mindset Podcast is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. I am Eric Kazimov, founder of CadSource and the creator of Sports C+. I'm hosting the Athlete Mindset Podcast on this platform as I deeply believe these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. So... I'm beyond excited today to have Dr. Tiana Woolridge with us today on the podcast. Let's go. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things today, and we know you'll get a lot out of it. So the first thing is, Tiana, you're known for a lot of different things, I'm sure, right now at this point in your life. You're very successful in your own right in different ways. But I think I would like to start today with the identity of the daughter of Orlando Woolridge. We've talked a little bit about your dad, and I think it'd be great to shed some light on his story, your relationship mm-hmm. with him. So tell us, who is Orlando Woolridge besides being your dad? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me be here. I'm super excited to be here for this conversation. I feel very flattered by all the kind words you shared. So yes, I am the youngest of three kids. Of Orlando Woolridge and Patricia Jackson. They were high school sweethearts back in a small town, Louisiana. And, you know, they were maybe like 15 and 14 years old. My dad told my mom, she was like Miss Corncob or something, very Southern in a <laughs> county fair going. And, you know, my dad saw her from afar and just love at first sight kind of deal. And, you know, they had all these huge dreams about what they wanted to do in life. My dad was, you know, 6'9, 6'10. So, of course, I was kind of written in the stars from early on that he was going to be a basketball phenom. And my mom was, you know, the artsy one, really involved in plays and musical theater and played all these instruments. And so, yeah, they had dreams of traveling the world together, of having beautiful children together that would go off and do good things in the world. So they made a lot of that come true, which is so beautiful and wonderful to see. But that was not without its ups and downs. You know, my my dad had a really shining basketball career and a really promising sort of outlook to his basketball career. He played at the University of Notre Dame, went on, was drafted to the Bulls in, I believe, 86. I was like, I hope some... I wasn't born yet. So if I was not the right year, <laughs> I'd try to take that route of, you know, I was young, I wasn't around yet. But yeah, and then had a really, really powerful career. But kind of as part of the reason that we're here today and talking about all of this, his career and his legacy was impacted by him having to manage a substance use disorder while he was playing, um, having to go to rehab and, you know, continue to manage that and try to uh, stay sober through his athletic career. 
again, when I think about kind of who my dad is to me beyond this basketball player, I just think of him and I just see his huge smile and his positive energy. And that is something that absolutely runs in the Woolridges. We're loud. You hear us coming. <laughs> there's, there's a certain laugh that we all do that's kind of characteristic of the Woolridge line. And yeah, he was just so much fun to be around. You know, magnetic personality. People loved him. And he was a monster on the court. You know, I, I can go back nowadays and YouTube his, you know, dunks or highlights. And it's the crowd just explodes when he would just go fearless and go dunk on like three people. So it's really, really fun. If you haven't seen any of his highlights, I definitely would go back and check them out. I want to. I want to. And I'm older than you. So (laughs) I know a little bit more about him and his (laughs) when he was currently playing. Um, Yes. But like, remind me again, what teams he played for in the NBA when when he was at that point in his career? Yeah, yeah. So he played for quite a few. The the main ones that kind of stick out for me is again the Bulls. My it's kind of around you know our family and where we moved around. Mm-hmm. So started off with the Bulls. My oldest brother was born while he was playing there, and then played for quite a few different teams um, on the East Coast. But the kind of most notable one is going to the Lakers for me because that ended up being what rooted me and my family in Los Angeles. So I was born and raised in Los Angeles, um, and so those were kind of the big two in our family in terms of marking different times in our lives. He also played overseas for a couple of years. Um, I had, I think, my first and second birthday, maybe, in Italy, okay. which is awesome. And of course, I don't remember any of it, but my mm-hmm. oldest brother's... <laughs> but yeah, he, you know, he ended up playing 13 years of professional basketball. So had a, had a really long, impressive career, you know, physicality-wise. It's a lot of years to put on the body. So absolutely, yeah, really, really impressive athletic resume. For sure. And as a big, you know, the... the act- total like demand on the body is a lot. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. And the kind of dunking he used to do too. I'm so it's funny. I grew up playing basketball and then switched over to volleyball later, which as you know, is a non-contact sport. Yeah. And I'm just like the beating that he took on his body, you know, and on the knees and the joints with all that kind of flying over people and battling it out in the post. But, you know, he did it and did it for a long time, which was so impressive. Uh, Yeah, no, my my knees are good. (laughs) How he was still doing it. Even at 30, I'm just like, I don't know if I could be running around and jumping like that anymore. (laughs) No, I mean, I think that I appreciate you sharing not just, you know, about his professional career and experiences, but like what you know of him as a man and as his daughter and the family piece of it, your mom, all of that's, you know, really cool to hear about. I want to spend some time on what you said, substance use disorder. I want people to know who are listening, like Tiana is a doctor. Okay, so she has a certain capacity and area of expertise and knowledge to be able to talk about this from a medical professional standpoint. Mm -hmm. So please, you know, take notes. Please be on your edge of your seat for the things that she's going to say. You used the words substance use disorder. Can you Mm -hmm. share a little bit about why you word it that way, how you describe it, what yeah. you about it, that kind of thing, I think it'd be really, really powerful and important for people to hear. Oh, absolutely. So I, I feel really lucky to have trained in a place like San Francisco and to predominantly have a lot of my training be here at our community-based hospital at San Francisco General. And we have a really unique privilege to take care of lots of folks who society has really pushed aside and ignored and forgotten about. Mm. Um, and so folks living without housing stability, folks living you know, on the streets, people living with different marginalized um, infectious illnesses, 
And again, folks living with mental illnesses often, you know, untreated or quite severe mental illnesses. And so I've learned a lot of really important things about people-centered language uh, when it comes to folks with different illnesses. So rather than pointing at somebody and saying, oh, they're an addict or a druggie, um, really saying this is a person who has an illness. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like that does so much for reducing stigma around mental illness and, you know, taking some of the personal blaming that happens a lot when folks have mental illnesses and when they have various signs of symptoms of those mental illnesses, which affects their behavior. You know, because it's one thing if somebody has a kidney infection, they have a fever, they're like, okay, we'll treat this fever and that's all fine and dandy. We're not going to judge somebody for that. But oftentimes when somebody has a mental illness or a substance use disorder specifically, and the signs and symptoms come out as, you know, being angry or being agitated or you know, lying about certain things in order to get access to their substance. All of those things are pathology, right? Like those things are signs and symptoms of an underlying disease process. And so, you know, again, I I grew up knowing that in a really unique way um, because of that lived experience and because my mom was so open and honest from an early age about, hey, this is what your dad has. And, you know, he's been to rehab before and I have been in therapy before. And like, this is a fact of our family rather than kind of hiding it away or putting it in the closet, like, oh, this is not something we talk about because there's this shame there. And so again, from that personal life experience, I was able to not have that stigma towards my father or towards other people living with mental illness. And then in my medical training, and again, specifically being here in San Francisco, where we are, we attempt to be very conscious about the type of languages, the language that we use to describe our patients it's really kind of landed me in this great place where I can look at him with so much more compassion than other Mm -hmm. folks might be able to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for all of that. It's so just powerful, informative, knowledgeable. I don't know if you knew, but I started my early career in San Francisco too and had worked at some of the psychiatric inpatient units um, at San Francisco General for part of my career. Oh, wow, small world. Yeah, totally. So like the emphasis on our city, the Bay Area, about being super supportive and affirming and strength-based about how we talk about what people are going through. Mm-hmm. You and I know both know this, but I want to hit this home really, really hard here. Are you saying, Dr. Tiana Woolridge, that mm-hmm. substance use disorders, substance abuse disorders are mental illnesses? Yes. I want to really, really clearly state that. And that is something that is really important because, again, the signs and symptoms of these disorders are things that impact someone's behavior. And so when you look at a behavior and you don't look at, you know, the illness process, the kind of brain changes that happens when somebody develops a tolerance or a craving for a certain substance, using substances over time um, in certain folks who may have some predisposition to developing a disorder, that frequent use of a substance actually changes the brain, changes the wiring changes some of those, the balance of some of those neurotransmitters in a way that affects behavior. And again, if, if we just look at behavior and point that as someone's moral flaw or point it as, oh, this is a you know personality of that person, mm-hmm. something they decided to do, mm-hmm. that really takes away from the fact that these are folks who need treatment and who could benefit from treatment. And so again, rather than pointing a finger at the behavior and at the pathology, really, really pointing a finger at like, this is an illness that can be treated. Yes. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. What is your theory as much as you want to share either from your dad's experience or other 
patients that you work with or treat who have substance use disorders. Where do you think that behavior comes from? Is theories about like maybe for your dad or others where that comes from? Totally. That's a really great question. I think one, substance use disorders are incredibly common. Um, I was reading a statistic recently that one in 10 adults in this country have had a substance use issue in their lifetime. And so super common. You're in almost 10 people, like at least one person in there on average is dealing or has dealt with a, a substance use disorder, a substance use issue. And so I think there's something to be said for just randomness and that, you know, he happened to be that one in 10. I absolutely think the pressures of high-level athletics and that pressure, not just of having to perform on the court, but having a family depend on you and extended family and friends also depend on you. And, you know, being in these environments where all eyes are on you and your decision-making, you know, a lot of folks take that into their own hands of like finding an outlet for that pressure substances can absolutely be a part of that. And then, you know, there's always folks talk about the genetic maybe predispositions, like something running in the family, which I know less about um, in our family history or, you know, just things in, in terms of environment and things like that can, that can impact, raise, or lower your risk for developing substance use disorders. But the last thing I'll say to this point, which I feel like is something even nowadays that I feel passionately about working towards is about education and awareness of those early signs of potential substance dependence or early signs that like, hey, this is maybe beyond something that's just, oh, this person's having fun or this person is trying to relax, you know, on a weekend and saying, okay, there is maybe some sign or symptom of a mental illness that's happening here and that someone needs help. And we don't get a lot of that mental health kind of education. And I know both of us are working very hard to try to change that. Yes. For our young people, but you know, people are able to recognize those signs within themselves and within a loved one, and say early on before things get, you know, progress very far in terms of the illness. If somebody's able to recognize those things and act early on, I feel like that always has such a better, you know, prognosis for the future. Absolutely, thank you, thank you. Would you mind sharing some of those signs and symptoms that you are, you know, attuned to and kind of sensitive to in the development of? a substance use disorder, because just like any other mental health condition or mental illness, folks can exist on a continuum mm-hmm. of being you know, mild, moderately, or severely involved mm-hmm. in the behaviors of a substance use disorder. So if we were to like try to catch it before it's taken to the next level by an individual, like what would you want to make sure people are looking for in themselves or a loved one or people that we care mm-hmm. about? As a physician, the, the first thing I always like to share with people, because it's hard to remember all the specific things to look out for, but looking out for a certain type of behavior or mood that is impacting someone's functioning. So their ability to go about their life on a day-to-day basis, you know, go to school, go to work, go to practice. Those things, any again, type of behavior or mood issue that is impacting someone's ability to do the normal things that they need to do, that's always going to be a red flag. This is a person who may need help. And so specifically talking about substance use disorders, there's a handful of categories that we look at in terms of changes in behavior. So one being having to use that substance more, having to use more of that substance than one had to use before in order to get the same effect. Something else is also feeling, you know, those heavy withdrawal symptoms. And so if it's somebody who's, you know, using these symptoms and having, you know, feeling really, really terrible for the next day or a couple of days, um, and kind of, again, re-engaging in those substances to try to prevent some of those withdrawal symptoms. Mm-hmm. 
And again, these are all really signs showing how the brain and how the body is changing as a result of these substances. And so that gets back to what we were saying earlier about how this isn't just like, oh, personal choice, I'm going to do this, but there's actual physical changes that happen and neurochemical changes that happen in the body that make it more likely that somebody is potentially going on to develop a substance use disorder. And so, yeah. And then I think, again, in the the things that happened with my dad, that kind of were the tipping point of, okay, this is something that needs to be treated, is that interruption with, that, with those daily activities. So starting to mispractice, starting to not show up for things um, that he was supposed to show up for. And again, these are symptoms that we know of potential substance use disorders. When somebody is doing things to obtain that substance and use that substance in such a way that they are like blowing off their family and life responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And again, not a moral choice. These are things that are like in, if you look at the diagnostic and statistical manual um, that we all kind of study and work off of as mental health providers, yes. these are things that are in the book about what happens with folks who have substance use disorders. Yes. Yes, they are. They are in our book. And important for us to keep an eye on, to keep it as mild as possible, to intervene mm-hmm. as soon as possible, and educating those around, in this case, you know, high-level athletes, that they, they also know the signs and symptoms. The athletic trainers mm-hmm. who are trained to also know those things, their coaches, each other, their teammates, mm-hmm. even the equipment guys, you know, they mm-hmm. all should be able to know what to look out for. So it's a whole ecosystem that depends on each other and cares for each other. So thank you for right. really, really breaking that down. I mean, you are in your residency. You're about to embark mm-hmm. on another stage of it. Tell mm-hmm. us about it, how you feel about it, what you're you know, focusing on and specializing in as a, as a doctor of medicine. Yes, I am so excited. So I'm currently a resident in the Department of Pediatrics. And so I will be a board certified pediatrician very soon, which is exciting. And then, (laughs) thank you, thank you. After I finish that this summer, I will be going to the University of California, Los Angeles to do a fellowship program in the Department of Sports Medicine, specifically in primary care sports medicine. So thinking a lot about how do we optimize the overall health, including uh, physical and mental well-being for our athletes. How do we optimize non-operative treatment for our athletes for various musculoskeletal conditions? And so I'm, I'm really, really excited to jump into that as somebody who's been part of this NBA family and been an athlete my whole life and in college. It, it feels like this really cool full circle moment where I can take not only the life lessons that I learned from you know being in an athletic family and being an athlete myself and hand it to the next generation, but I can also add this medical knowledge um, and use that to kind of give back to a community of people that I was in. Absolutely. That's so cool. So, so cool. Tell me more about what it means to you to be like back in LA mm-hmm. and at UCLA where there's family history there. There's so much. What does it mean to you to be back there and serving that community? It's really exciting. And I, I defined it as this full circle moment because you know, really what brought my dad and my family to Los Angeles was the Lakers giving him a chance in the setting of you know, he was actively managing the substance use disorder. He was getting rehabilitation for this, getting therapy and treatment for the substance use disorder in Los Angeles, in the city of LA. And the Lakers really gave him that opportunity where other teams said, oh, you know, with the social stuff going on, we don't know if we necessarily want to get into this. And being able to see an organization really 
look at the overall well-being of their athlete is really something beautiful to me and something that I hope to be able to contribute to. Now, being on the other side, as you know, me and my family being on the player side before, now being able to be on the medical side mm-hmm. and being able to help that next generation of athletes means a lot to me. And so I am extremely grateful for this opportunity. I hope to continue to help those young student athletes and help prevent. I'm a, I'm a big big person focused on the prevention of illnesses. Um, I actually have a master's in public health from Harvard that I did when I was in medical school. And the focus of public health, as lots of you all know, with you know COVID and all of the respiratory viruses that have been running through recently, we think a lot about how do we prevent illness, not just how we treat it when somebody's already sick, but what are some of those upstream factors that lead to somebody getting sick and how can we reduce the likelihood of them getting sick? And so I have the same mindset in terms of thinking about physical injuries, in terms of thinking about mental injuries, mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited to see what I can do to help continue to elevate the next generation. No, it's inspiring in so many ways. Thank you for sharing all that in detail. I mean, am I correct also in that you might even get a chance to work with some of the Lakers as well from a yes. standpoint? Mm-hmm. You are correct. You are correct. So yeah. as part of my fellowship program. I'll be working with UCLA Athletics, of course. So getting good training and taking care of the elite college athlete. And as part of that, we work with two professional teams, so that being the Dodgers and then the Los Angeles Lakers. So some of those pre-participation physical exams and some of the kind of doctor's visits and checkups that they have to do um, before getting the season started and then any medical needs that pop up throughout the season, I'll be in the room and assisting and part of that medical team managing those things. So I'm beyond excited. It is, you know, even not having a family tie to the Lakers, to the organization, like who wouldn't want to be a part of that? So I'm I'm beyond excited, ready to go. Yeah, I know you are. I know you are. You're passionate about everything you do. You put your heart and soul into everything. Um, Yeah, got to. There's no, pardon my language, there's no half-ass in for Dr. Tiana. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, that's not it. In my family, not allowed. <laughs> no, no, it's not an option. But such a full circle moment, like literally, like yes. now you are going to be as part of your fellowship working for and with the Los Angeles Lakers, just like your dad did. I mean, like yeah. different role, yeah. obviously, but like you were <laughs> so slightly cool. different. <laughs> but it's so cool. Where did you play? Where did you play your sport? In college. Oh, yeah. So I actually played four years of college volleyball at Princeton University. Okay. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Let's <laughs> represent. Yep. Always, always and forever. I had an incredible time. It's funny. I was considered the black sheep of the family because I switched from basketball. <laughs> and I remember, you know, when I told my middle brother, Ronaldo, will reach this. I think this was my junior year in high school. I was like, you know, Ronaldo, I think I'm going to make the switch. I think I'm going to go over to volleyball full time now. And he just like very sternly looks at me. He's like, the Wolver just play basketball. (laughs) (laughs) I will will never forget that. But I think that's very, very telling about who you are that even though there's that family lineage and that sort of almost, you know, unspoken and sometimes spoken pressure. Yeah. Follow in that footsteps of your dad that you were still confidently were able to kind of move over. I've never oh, met totally. a person, and that's my hope to do that soon. I know we have plans, but how tall are you? <laughs> I'm six foot two. So I'm the shrimp I mean, in my family. Oh, I'm the little one. <laughs> my brothers are six six and six nine. 
oh my god i gotta wear the heels around them just so i know i'm there like i feel oh my god <laughs> okay when we see uh, each other because we have plans to do so we'll take a picture yeah. we're gonna we're gonna yeah it's gonna be fun oh no how tall are you you're like a whole foot taller than me i'm only five <laughs> Okay, so maybe you were doing basketball and volleyball. Your Those were not my sports. Those are not my sports. I played a sport where height really wasn't a factor as much. There Soccer. You go. There Soccer. You go. I mean, if you have the height, you can use it, but it's not right. essential to be oh, to play man. well and perform well. So, oh, it's awful trying to play soccer at my height. My feet are so far <laughs> away from my face. Like it's really <laughs> feet eye coordination is a zero out of ten. So. Ooh, oh, that's hilarious. You're funny. You are funny. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to my brothers about that a bit, about that pressure of, mm. you know, being that next generation to mm-hmm. a professional athlete. And mm-hmm. I didn't envy them growing up, you know? It's it's hard. I feel like as a woman, and, you know, we can get into all the stigma around, like, women's athletics and all. That's a whole other podcast for another day. Yep. There's sure. a lot of news going on in that in women's athletics, but... Mm-hmm. the pressure wasn't on me in the same way. And that was, that was also largely because I wanted to be a doctor. And so I was just like six years old, six, seven years old. So people weren't necessarily looking at me like, oh, this is going to be the next you know, pro athlete of the family. Uh-huh. Uh, but I know there was that look on my brothers. And I can only imagine kind of mentally how tough that had to have been to carry that. Uh-huh. And we acknowledge that. My mom, what I really, really love and appreciate about my mom there's a lot of things, and I promise I'm not saying this because I want something from her. Because it's the first thing she would say. <laughs> but <laughs> I really, really appreciate about my mom is she was so open about mental illness from day one in our family, wow. and about stress and pressure and the impact of you know pressure and how that can change somebody's life and their behaviors and their well being. And so you know, from the time I was probably like five or six years old, like I knew that. My dad had the substance use disorder. I knew that my mom had depression. It was in therapy. And so that's something that a lot of people in this world just don't have those open conversations around mental health. And, you know, for my mom, it was always, I want you to hear this from me and not from somebody else um, because mm-hmm. we were public figures in that way. And, you know, so we'd look in the newspaper or magazine, like it would be sort of right there. And so I appreciate that, but not just because of the hearing it from her first, but because of that open conversation. And I I talk to my patients and their families about that all the time, just the importance of that open line of communication, especially for teenagers and for young adults. It is vital. It is vital, vital, vital. There's all these, you know, quote unquote, risk factors for developing mental illness or substance use disorders and all these adverse childhood experiences that folks talk about that may set people up for a less productive or healthy lifestyle. But the number one protective factor in all of those things is the presence of a loving adult. And so, Uh yeah, my mom is superwoman. She raised us all as a single mother. My parents had divorced when I was about like six or seven years old. And so, you know, she she raised us. She got three kids all playing NCAA D1 sports. (laughs) She had a professional athlete. My middle brother played professionally in the G League and overseas. And She's got a doctor. She's got an engineer. So she's, she did it. <laughs> she did. Yes, she did. Yes, she did. Unbelievable. Yeah. She is yes. a superwoman. I hope to meet her one day. She's yes. amazing. That inner yeah. just wherewithal and strength and just yeah. ability to keep going and to just, right. you know. And that strength to also like know when she was not okay. And mm-hmm. that strength to be like, okay, I'm helping, you know, my husband with 
the substance use disorder and I'm trying to kind of keep my family of these three little kids going and I need support too. And so her, you know, seeking out getting connected with therapy as well, I find that is such a huge source of strength that she showed in that time. Absolutely. Yes, strength is a broader term than, if this sounds funny, than being strong. Sometimes recognizing that you're not, you know. I love that. I love that. And that's okay, right? So Mm -hmm. that's important for people to hear. There is a community of people out there who are survivors of loss, you know, Mm -hmm. survivors of family members and friends who might die by suicide or might die by substance use disorder. You know, mm-hmm. what do you recommend for people like that to get support? And like, what is the expected response? Like people might beat themselves up for feeling certain ways. Like what's yeah. a common expected response that's normal and okay for those community members or family members who who are surviving? Yeah, yeah. I think that exactly what you just said or that feeling of taking the ownership and taking the sense of, oh, if I did this, if I did that. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's really difficult and this is a like a disease again a disease and an illness that mm-hmm. ultimately ended up leading to that person's life being taken and so i think it's it's just really important to recognize that to recognize that this is an illness and this isn't necessarily something i could have fixed on my own as an individual um and so working through that i think I'm, I've talked about therapy like four times already. I love therapy. Like I've been in and out of therapy since 2011, probably. 2012, actually. 2012 was the year my dad passed. So that was the first time I went to therapy. And again, for the last X number of years after that, I've been in therapy. And I think it's just a great opportunity to work through some of the challenging thought patterns and the challenging connections that we make in our thoughts that make us feel worse about ourselves in these situations. And there's there's always just the natural grieving process, you know, uh-huh. so six months plus after somebody passes, you'll have that feeling of loss, of pain, of grief, of wondering why this is happening, the fairness of all of this happening, the unfairness of all of it happening. All of those things are very normal and natural reactions, wanting to withdraw from other people. These things happen after we lose somebody. And uh-huh. I think what's important, and actually the first thing that the reason I started going to therapy was the length of time that I was sort of grieving my dad. And he passed in May of 2012. And I remember getting into my fall semester. So in fall of 2012, I was still having a really, really hard time. Just emotionally, I was feeling very down, feeling like not wanting to be around people, having a harder time concentrating and working in this classroom and in volleyball. And I remember my mom sharing with me, she's like, you know, I I think this is getting beyond sort of the typical grieving process. Like, I think you should probably talk to somebody and try to find a therapist on campus. And I did, thank goodness. And that was wonderful. And I started taking an antidepressant. And that really, both of those things helped me immensely and completely turn around the rest of that year to the point that I was able to succeed, you know, in volleyball and in the classroom in a way that I don't think I would have without those support systems in place. And so again, I think that it's important to know both the normal, you know, quote unquote normal trajectory of grieving a loss. And especially when you have a loss that's so unique in this way. And then I think also important to recognize, okay, around six months going on longer than that, like I I should really start thinking about what else may be going on with me and getting help as needed. Mm -hmm. 
gosh, thank you so much for being so open and candid yeah. and vulnerable. I mean, the fact that you, who you are in your life and in your profession can speak so openly about your own mental health journey is mm-hmm. just inspiring and will normalize conversations across the yeah. world, really. Anyone who has access to this, access to you, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we as providers and in help serving the health caring professions, we're not immune yep. to yeah. our own adversity and to our own life experiences and lived experience because we're humans too. You know, mm-hmm. we don't just take care of everyone else and not take care of ourselves. Yeah. Um, thank you for continuing to bring light to the work that you do, to the people that you help, the populations that you prioritize and serve. It matters. It means a lot. I feel very honored to know you and can't wait to continue to watch your career and Mm -hmm. all the things that you are doing. It's really, really amazing. And, you know, just you're such a busy person. So I really thank you for taking the time to sit and chat with me. I can't wait for everybody to have a listen. You have so much knowledge to share and do it so gracefully and so like humbly down to earth. So I really, really appreciate you spending time with me today. Oh, thank you. Of course. And I I try to, I mean, I'm usually whenever I'm talking about medical things and clinic or whatnot, I have like a two-year-old child crawling all over me. And so (laughs) you kind of learn how to communicate in a fun way. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I I have a pretty... A pretty awesome job. I'm gonna miss the um, working with really little babies and kids once I go over to sports medicine, but I'm embracing it these days. And you know, it's being a doctor. It's hard. Residency is hard, but it's one of the most incredible jobs in the world. I have a huge privilege to be able to take care of people and make them feel better and meet them at the worst part of their lives and try to help make a difference. And whether that is in pediatrics or sports medicine, I'm just so grateful for these opportunities, and I'm grateful for people like you. For creating these spaces and, and trying to, you know, prevent suffering. And there's there's a lot of suffering out there. And so I appreciate you and the work that you do to reduce that and to try to give people the skills and the knowledge they need to take control of whatever illness they're dealing with or stress or pressures that they have to confront. So thank you. Thank you. It's just great to know you, another woman in sports, just another great human. And I look forward to many more interactions with you. So thank you again. Yes, yes, so much more to come. <laughs> Athlete Mindset is part of the CasSource Podcast Network. At CasSource, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're growing this one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you by searching CasSource on your social media app of choice. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network, the CasSource Podcast Network.